Salvation Now podcast, where you'll discover and be equipped with keys from the Word of God that will pave the way to God's unlimited blessing in your life. Now, here's your host, Evangelist T.J. Malkanji. I'm praying that today's broadcast is going to impart an evangelistic zeal into your heart such as you've never witnessed before. You know, part of the ministry of the evangelist, the Bible, oh, I think Facebook just came live. Part of the ministry, yep, Facebook just came live. Praise the Lord. Part of the ministry of an evangelist in Ephesians 4, I'm going to read it here for you, and that's what God's called me to do is to be an evangelist. There's a five-fold ministry. There's apostle, prophet, pastor, evangelist, and teacher. These, the Bible says, are gifts that God has given to the church. For the edification of the body of Christ. Listen to this. Ephesians 4 and verse 11. And he gave some, Jesus, he, gave G, um, he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of of the stature of the fullness of Jesus Christ, that we no longer be children tossed to and fro, carried about by every wind of doctrine and the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but that we can now speak the truth in love and grow up and grow up in all things into him who is the head, Jesus Christ. So God has instituted these gifts in the church for, verse 12 says, the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. I have a twofold purpose as an evangelist. Number one is that I go and reach the lost in the unreached places, the destitute, the outcast, the abandoned, the disregarded, the discarded, the ones that society has chewed up and spat out that the devil has afflicted and kept bound. My mission is to reach them with the all-saving gospel of Jesus Christ. And we're going to find out today that that's actually every Christian's mission, no matter what God has called you to specifically, our general commission, Matthew 28, our great commission is to preach the gospel. But my second thing, my second purpose that God wires evangelists to do is to, inst- to um, instill this same fervor and zeal into Christians worldwide into body of bodies of believers, into local churches, so that, you know, there are people that I'm never going to reach at your workplace, in your school, in your family, wherever you might be, in your marketplace that you, in the, the, the local library, for goodness sakes, whoever, and wherever you might be, there are certain places that I cannot go. But I want you to get this in your spirit today, that you are the walking, talking Jesus on the earth. And as much as Jesus has a heart for humanity, as much as he has compassion to reach the lost, as much as his mission has not changed, and that is to come and to seek and save that which was lost, the Bible says this is a trustworthy statement that Christ came into this world to save sinners. As much as he desires to do that, and his will is to do that, he requires a cooperative body uh, to, to get that work done. Our, his body, which is us, the church, 
must cooperate with that mission if he's going to reach those people. Jesus cannot touch people that we do not touch. Jesus cannot heal people that we don't move on his instruction to lay hands on the sick and see them recover. Jesus cannot save people that they uh, who have never heard this great and glorious gospel of salvation. He could only work as we work. He could only save as we move out and preach this gospel of salvation. He can only reach those that we take our physical bodies and our resources, our effort and our energy in reaching. And so there's a great responsibility that is placed on the life of a believer. You are not saved to just sit in a pew and warm it up until the day that Jesus Christ returns. It's very clear. If that was the case, why didn't God just kill you the moment you got saved? If the purpose of your life is just to get saved and that's it, why didn't God just rapture you up like Elijah, a chariot of fire, a windstorm, just rapture you up, seize you, take you up, by force, so that you spent eternity with heaven, and then all, all was said and done. No, the Bible says, let me read this, Ephesians chapter 2. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he has for us, when we were dead in sins, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And raised us up together and made us to sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, lest any man should boast. If you're just tuning in now on Facebook, YouTube, whatever it is, help me get this word out. Like, comment as much as you can. It helps with the algorithms. Share as much as you can on Facebook. I want this broadcast to ignite a, 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 a evangelistic fire in the hearts of those that come in contact with it. It's because the days of the Lord are approaching. The day of the Lord is approaching. The day of the return of Jesus Christ is nigh. And the Bible says that blessed is that man whom when his master will come will find so working. I want to activate sleeper cells in the body of Christ today with this evangelistic fervor. There are many who know the Great Commission. There are many who can quote the Great Commission. There are many who can locate it in their Bibles, Matthew 28, 18 through 19. There's many people who learned it growing up in Sunday school, but not many people carry that Great Commission as their own responsibility, and they don't carry a sense of duty for the accomplishment of that task to take full heed unto the ministry that we've received from the Lord that we might fulfill it. The Bible says, Paul told Timothy, endure hardships, be watchful in all things, do the work of an evangelist. He told Timothy, who wasn't even an evangelist, he was a pastor, but he said, do the work of an evangelist and thereby fulfill your ministry. Our lives will live, we will live unfulfilled lives until we start to do this work of evangelism, of soul winning, of winning the lost. The Bible says in Proverbs 11.30, he that wins souls is wise, and the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life. Winning souls literally makes life thrilling. It's what makes life exciting. It's what makes Christianity a, a colorful thing. It's what makes it bright and powerful without soul winning. Instituted in the life of believers, their life is literally just motions and routines and nine to five work, check in church, two hours Sunday morning, go back into the world and do nothing. And the Bible says you are storing up 
You are storing up a work. You're building a work of wood that when the fire of God comes to test the work that we've built up in this day on the earth, the Bible says the fire, the judgment of God, which we as Christians, we're passed out of the great white throne judgment. We're not going to go through that judgment because we're saved. We're in Christ. But there is a judgment seat of Christ that we must all appear before Christ to give an account of the deeds that we've done in the flesh, whether good or bad. What did you do with Jesus? Matthew 20 talks about the parable of the idle workers. The master comes out at the third hour. He finds some workers idle, just standing back. That's the problem with 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 um with Christendom at large today is you have a lot of people that attend church, but the strength of a church is not in how many it seats, the strength of a church is in how many it sends. I'm going to repeat that. The strength of a church is not in how many it can seat and retain. The strength of a church is in how many it sends, how many it dispatches, how many it releases as laborers into the harvest field. And the reason why our world looks like the way it looks like today is not because the devil is bigger and stronger today than he was in the days of the first century A.D., when it seemed like Christianity was taking the world by storm and flipping the work of the devil upside down and establishing God's kingdom, it's because uh, at large, up until the 19th, I want you to understand this, from like the 200 AD area up until the 1900s, early 1900s, evangelism was like almost a lost art. 1800s, I would say, when the first great awakening hit and then the second great awakening not too long after. It, evangelism was pretty much a lost art. Nobody was really doing it. We were just, it was just a religion. We just attended church. We, we listened to what the priest had to say with his Bible tied by chain to the pulpit. And they would twist it to say whatever they wanted to say for political gain. For a long time, they, they called it the dark era, uh, era, the dark ages of the church where nothing was accomplished. But in 1906 especially when Azusa happened and the Pentecostal outpouring and the fire, the Spirit of God was poured out on the, the, that church, that little missionary work in Azusa, on a new Azusa Street in Los Angeles, California. And William Seymour began to preach on this baptism in the Holy Ghost and people came and flocked from all over the world to hear this one-eyed preacher Preach on Acts chapter 2. When the Spirit of God came back into the church again, when the Spirit of God began to fill the lives of believers again, this evangelistic fervor was restored. And we began to see uh, armies, soldiers, Navy SEALs, Christians going to the unreached parts of this or of this world from 1900 till now till not now but with by the way the pentecostals were at large mocked and scoffed and made fun of because of this weird phenomenon that they called speaking in tongues glossolalia they were mocked they were spat on many pentecostal preachers had to watch their back when they went through certain towns because the other denomination leaders that thought it was demon demonization that they thought they were possessed literally they would beat them up and they would treat them spitefully but these pentecostal found fathers Kept with the message. I mean, have any of you ever, ever heard of Reinhard Bonnke? Reinhard Bonnke was a little German boy in Germany. Um, his father unsaved. His grandfather unsaved. They were not redeemed. They were not Christians. And in Azusa Street, there was a German missionary that heard about what God was doing there. He flew over to Azusa 
to that Azusa Mission uh, Street Mission, whatever it was called, the the Azusa Street. Um, it wasn't a church; it was like a mission, like a like almost like a food bank. And uh, he flew there, gets baptized in the Holy Ghost, begins to speak in tongues, and then his eyes are open to the reality of eternity and the depravity of man. And he goes back to Germany, which where he was from, and begins. He was driving uh, through some like wooded areas and he got lost he was driving a mercedes benz got gets lost gets out of his car there's a local village goes to ask for directions before he asks for directions he asked the the clerk of the store that he was in have you heard of the gospel of jesus christ he said sir we're lutheran here we're not interested have you been born again and have you had an encounter with that jesus and they said no we don't we don't believe that way we we we, we go to church but we don't believe that way and uh, he said, if I were, he said, show me the, the, the gravest sick person in this town, the most uh, sick person you can point to in this town. If I were to lay hands on him and he were to recover, would you believe my message that I carry you today, that I carry to you today? And he said, if you were to do that, sure. And then as he said that, there was a shriek about a, 500 meters away, a man shrieking. And he said, what's that? He said, that's brother so-and-so. He has uh, rheumatoid arthritis and he's left uncured and he's been in agonizing pain for many, many months and we don't know what to do with him. He said, if I were to go and lay hands on him today and he were to recover, would you believe my message? And he said, yes. They went to the house and uh, the man was in bed, his family around him. They had gathered the whole family around. This missionary who had just received the power of the Holy Ghost at that Azusa Street Mission place, goes, lays hands on him, and immediately, he says, the power of the Lord Jesus Christ heals you. Immediately, that man receives a shock from heaven and stands up straight on his feet, totally restored, totally healed. Well, not many people know this, but that was Reinhard Bonnke's grandfather. His grandfather becomes a Pentecostal pastor. His, um, Reinhard Bonnke's father Led, trained up in the ways of God, a Pentecostal pastor. Reinhard Bonnke gets the baptism of the Holy Ghost at a young age and sees a visionary of, uh, sees a vision of Africa and blood being shed all over Africa. And he sees three dreams, three dreams, one night after the other, where he hears as he sees a blood-bought Africa, the blood of Christ just dripping over the continent of Africa on a geographical map. He hears the voice of heaven's armies shouting, Africa shall be saved. And that sparked the beginning of Reinhard Bonnke's ministry that led 79 million people to the Lord. Hallelujah. So Ephesians 2.10 says, We are workmanship. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before that we should walk in. You're not just saved to sit on a pew and warm up a pew. You're not just saved to join a body, to join an organizational structure, to adapt yourself to religious tenures. We are saved to get to saving others. We are Christ's workmanship. When we were born again, we were created and is recreated, regenerated in the image of God. And the Bible says in Ephesians 2.10, four good works. Four good works. There is works that are, are, are not just optional. There are works that are essential for us as believers, redeemed, blood-bought Christians to fulfill. 
And so I want to go through five reasons why you must be a soul winner. I said it before, at the third hour, there were idle workers standing by. At the sixth hour, idle workers standing by. At the ninth hour, idle workers standing by. At the eleventh hour, which hour we, I said all the time, we're, at, we're not just at the eleventh hour anymore. We are at 11.59.59, the last few milliseconds of time before Jesus Christ returns. And the Bible says, when the master came out, he still found people at the eleventh hour. At that crucial hour, standing by, idle, doing nothing. And he didn't rebuke them for it. He said, what are you doing standing idle? Get into my fields. Because the harvest is plentiful and it's ripe. John 4 says, the harvest is ripe for the, for the reaping. It's white. Look, lift up your eyes and look. The harvest is plentiful and it is ripe. And he says, I'm sending you into that harvest field to reap that for which you have not labored for. Others have labored for you, but you're going in to reap the harvest. That's the day and the age we're in right now. That's the time that we're in right now. And so if you, maybe you've been saved 10 years, maybe you've been saved 10 months, maybe you've been saved 10 minutes. It doesn't matter. I want to um, almost knight you today. You know how the queen knights people and, and they're, they're knighted as knights of England. I want to knight you today. Literally enroll you, enlist you. Paul said, there's no man who is enlisted into active warfare who entangles himself with the affairs of this life. I want to enlist you into active warfare today to be used as God's hands and feet and mouthpiece to put out the final trumpet call towards mankind. Towards your neighbors, towards your city, towards your region. Compelling people. You know that word compel that Jesus said compel them to come into my house? That word compel is anakazo in the Greek, which literally means to, 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 to be fervent in. To do whatever needs to be done to bring them in. To go to unusual lengths. And use unusual methods to bring people in. I pray as I speak on five reasons you must be a soul winner today. That God would deposit in your heart blueprints, visions, plans, ideas, innovative methods. Maybe things that nobody's ever done before. That God would drop into your heart for the purpose of fulfilling this great commission. Some of you, you might have said, I, I, I want to win the loss, but I don't know how, or I don't know what to do, or I don't know how I could plug into this vision. I pray today, God is going to make it clear as day to know what to do, to know how to do it, and then a, a passion and a power to get it done in Jesus' name. Five reasons why you must be a soul winner. I'm going to get straight into it. Luke I'm not going to read that just for the sake of time. Number one, five reasons why you, you must be a, uh, a soul winner. Number one, it is commanded. Matthew chapter 28. Let me read this. Matthew chapter 28 and verse 18. Jesus said to them, his disciples, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Verse 19. Go ye therefore and make disciples of all the nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, and in the name of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the ends of the age. Turn to Mark chapter 16. Mark chapter 16. 
And beginning with verse 15, and he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will follow those who believe in my name. They shall cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They'll take up serpents. And if they drink anything deadly, it will be by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and the sick will recover. So then after the Lord had spoken this to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere. The Lord working with them, confirming the word through the accompanying signs. The great commission is not a great option it is not a work that is reserved for a few religious zealots in their day it is not delegated simply to the work of the office of the evangelist it is not something that we can contract solely to the work of a pastor it's not something we can actually contract to anyone else it's not like well i don't feel like i'm gifted to do that so i'll you know what i'll just throw money into it or uh which is good and we're going to give you an opportunity to sow into this crusade that we're doing this weekend friday saturday sunday into in saskatoon saskatchewan there's nothing wrong with that i do it i sow into soul winning ministries but i sow win myself second corinthians chapter five let me read this jesus said his final words you remember now understand this the very first words jesus spoke to his disciples were what Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. His last words that he spoke to his disciples were, Go ye therefore into all the world and fish men. His first commandment and instruction to the disciples was go after the lost. His last commandment to the disciples was go after the lost. His full ministry was guided and geared and directed towards reaching the lost he's walking through Zacchaeus's town the bible says he was a man of short stature he wasn't a tall guy but he heard that Jesus was passing through so he went up into the sycamore tree that he might have a position to see Jesus what did Jesus do he didn't just pass through so he can preach his sermon finish his points and then give people an opportunity to sow into his ministry he actually stopped to where Zacchaeus was he found the one unreached person he found the one that society has given up on he found the one that was taboo to talk to do to, to, to ta taboo to talk to he found the one that people had abandoned people would not want anything to do with the religious system had totally labeled Zacchaeus as a as a charlatan as one not to be associated with as one not to be uh, found in association with not to be found with not to have dinner with not to sit with you should totally disconnect from that type of person what did Jesus do he found that one guy and said Zacchaeus come down from that tree tonight today I must eat at your house I must sit with you I must spend time with you and that very day salvation came to Zacchaeus's house so you can see Jesus's whole purpose for living, for this cause have I come. For this reason was I born that I might bear witness unto the truth, Jesus told Pilate. For this cause, he lived with a mission. He lived with a purpose. He lived with a cause. If you're not running with a vision, you are, you're just a burden. If you're not running with a vision, then you'll just be a burden. And that's what I see in a lot of churches. The people that are not engaged in soul winning are often the ones that are causing church splits. They're often the ones that are pulling people away from God. They're often the ones that are constantly uh, in, 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 in spiteful 
they're constantly in strife with everyone they're constantly causing trouble they're constantly pointing this out they always have something to pick with they always have something they don't like they're always uh, uh, complaining about pastor's sermons he goes too long he goes too short the church is too big the church is too small they're always because they don't carry the responsibility that as Christians we're supposed to carry, they then take up other responsibilities that are unchrist-like, complaining about everything, adding in their two cents, speaking ill about, gossiping. If you're not preaching the gospel, you're going to fall into preaching gossip. If you're not preaching the gospel and your hands are idle, the devil's playground is idle hands. So the devil tries to remove this, not crucial, this core ministry of the church of Jesus Christ. Because once he removes this, we lose focus. And then that's where strife, division, envy, and man-like, Adamic, sinful behavior rises up in the church. If you're not preaching the gospel, that's when most people fall into preaching gossip. And that's what causes the corrosion of churches, the destruction of churches. God said in Psalm 28, because they did not attend to the work of my hands and they did not concern themselves with the operation of my hands, which is what? I will build my church. God is concerned with the establishment of his church, with the building of his church. And because you did not build that, God said, I will destroy them. I will not build them up. He literally gives them over. Any church that is not concerned with soul winning has forfeited its biblical right to exist. Because Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. Notice how he didn't say, I will sustain my church. Notice how he didn't say, I will grow my church to a certain point and then after that you're on your own. He said, I will build. It's... a continuous verb. I am building, I will build, and I will always build my church. And the gates of hell will try to prevail against it, but it will not succeed. And so when we lose focus on the building of the church, which the church is not necessarily just a building, that is the place where we gather, it is important. But the church is reaching people's hearts with the gospel. Building the church is first and foremost the action of reaching the hearts of men with this glorious gospel of salvation, with the message of the cross, which the, with the incorruptible seed of the gospel, which the Bible says when it is implanted, it brings about the salvation of the soul. It brings about the changed life. You know, people, especially in the church, you see there's all kinds of activism in life. There's all kinds of activists. There's all kinds of protests. In the last two years, you've seen that really intensify and increase in rate. And I'm sad to see when I have, I'm sad to say that there's many churches and Christians who bought on to these, these subdivisions, these like, they are important issues, but ultimately, until you remove sin from the heart of man, you can try and legislate things against racism and try and legislate things against uh, gun violence and try and legislate and put laws against all kinds of things until sin is removed from the heart of men by an encounter with God and the blood of Jesus Christ washing away the stain of sin in their life and removing and extracting the desire to sin and the hatred and the, 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 the poison of sin in the heart of men. All of those laws are going to fail 
It's illegal to kill people. People still find a way to kill people. It was not right to kill people in Cain's day. He took a rock. So if people don't have guns, they'll take rocks, they'll take knives, they'll take cars. They'll find a way to kill other people. Because until you remove murder from the heart and hate from the heart, you can legislate all you want. It won't do anything. Same with racism. That's why as Christians, as believers, our focus, our efforts should not be protesting against these things. You're literally trying to trim the branches on a tree without, and you're ignoring the core of the tree. You're ignoring the vine. If you get rid of the vine, if you cut the vine down, if you cut the, the trunk down, then the branches won't have anything to survive on. So quit trying to find all the side issues. Get to the main issue, which is sin. The problem has always been sin, and the solution has always been the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's always been that. So number one, why do we preach? Why must we be soul winners? Because it is commanded. I read it in Matthew 28. Go ye therefore. I read it in Mark 16. I want to read this. Ezekiel chapter 3. This is important. Ezekiel chapter 3. Ezekiel chapter 3. And beginning with verse 16. Now it came to pass at the end of seven days that the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, if you're just tuning in now, help me by sharing this broadcast. I have no idea why we have such low numbers today. Usually Tuesday is like our higher number, but beats me. Maybe something's not working. I don't know. But this is a message worth getting out to people. Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Therefore, hear a word from my mouth and give them warning from me. When I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give him no warning. Nor When I, when I say to the wicked, this is God speaking, you shall surely die. You'll die in your sin. And you give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way to save his life. That same wicked man will die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. Not, well, you know, soul winning's a good hobby for, for a few. You know, they really take their faith seriously. Oh, they're good Christians. There's no such thing as good Christians and bad Christians. You are either a Christian hot on fire for God or you're lukewarm and Jesus said, I'll spit you out of my mouth. There's no in between. I don't get why we think there's, oh, they're serious about their faith and we're just little, a little less serious about our faith, but we still believe. There's no in between. There's no spectrum. There's either you are in Christ or you're out of Christ. You're either... Winning souls or you're backsliding. That's, that's as simple as I can make it. Jesus didn't say, and if you have extra time on your hands, you shall go therefore and preach this gospel. Jesus didn't say, and to the few religious, for, uh, to the few religious zealots that are in my kingdom that aren't good at accounting or aren't good at being doctors or aren't good at doing all that stuff, they can take on this act of soul winning. He told all his disciples, you shall all be made fishers of men. Paul, when he had an encounter with God, look at what he said in Romans 9. Paul said, I would that if I could be a curse so that my brethren could be saved, I'd do it. Something came in him when he had an encounter with Christ. You cannot say you had an encounter with the God of the Bible and not carry a heart for what he has a heart for, which is people, lost, dying, sighing, crying humanity. You cannot say 
that you love God and hate people. And you might say, well, I don't hate people. I love people. I'm kind to people. The love of God is not in being kind to people. The love of God is not manifest in being nice to people. Because even wicked people can be nice to people. Even sinners are nice to other sinners. The love of God is made manifest. James 5.19 says it perfectly. When you, when you find a person who is in error, find a person who is on his way to hell in a handbasket, and you turn him from the error of his ways. You preach repentance and faith towards God. The Bible says, he that does that shall cover a multitude of sins. And the Bible says in Proverbs, love covers a multitude of sins. So the way we express the love of God to our generation, how did God manifest his love towards mankind? Did he do it by sending hugs and kisses from heaven? Did he do it by sending an angel to caress people on their heads and say, now, now, everybody, everything's going to be all right. How did the love of God be made manifest towards mankind? Romans 5a, God demonstrated. Love is not a feeling we have. Love is not a thought we have. Love is not thoughts and prayers for you. Love is in demonstration. 1 John says, let us not love in word only, but in action and in truth. If your love has no action tied to it, then it's not in truth. Love for it to be sincere and honored in the sight of God must have action tied to it. And the action the church has in demonstrating our love towards man is in preaching and soul winning, going after the lost. So God demonstrated his love towards us. How? He sent his only begotten son who didn't come with flowers and daisies to hand out. No, he came in the message. And from this moment onward, you can read it in Luke 3, Jesus, uh, Luke 4, preached saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, therefore repent. He came with a message of repentance and he came with a message of that the kingdom of heaven was here. A, a message of healing. Go and heal the sick. What did Jesus do? He taught in their synagogues. He preached the gospel. He told people to repent. He told people to put their faith in him. And then he healed the sick and he healed the diseases of the people. So he demonstrated his love, not ethereally, not just in saying, you know, I want to let you know I love you. That's not telling people, that's not showing the love of God. It's not just, you know, there's a lot of people who call themselves missionaries and all they do is pass out socks overseas. That's not a missionary. You're not, first of all, there is no office of missionary. If you're a missionary overseas, you fall under either the pastor, apostle, prophet, evangelist, or teacher. You fall under one of those, those fivefold uh, missions. You're not, a missionary is not you going over and teaching English in a foreign language. That's not in a foreign land. That's not uh, mission work as in Paul's mission mission work that's just pretty much humanitarian but we're not called to be humanitarian we're called to what evangelize this world and so we're not showing the love of Christ by just handing out clean water those are all good things and we should do that remember when Jesus delivered the gathering demoniac he's the Bible says when they found him he was sitting clothed and in his right mind so Jesus didn't just deal with the spiritual problem. He clothed the gathering demoniac. We should clothe people. We should build houses for the poor. We should build orphanages. We should do all those things by all means. But all of those things do not replace the task of worldwide evangelization. I'll repeat that. We should orf take care for orphans and build orphanages. orphanages. We should build hospitals. We should 
build houses for the underprivileged. We should build wells. We should be at the forefront of humanitarian work. But all of those things do not replace soul winning. Because we are not the Red Cross. We are not... Uh, we're not some humanitarian organization. We are the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, the pillar and ground of the truth. Let me move on to what I was saying in Ezekiel. Ezekiel 3.18, you shall, uh, if you warn him, if you do not warn him, his blood shall be required at your hand. Yet if you warn the wicked and he does not turn from his wickedness nor from his wicked way, he will die in his iniquity, but you have delivered your soul. Lester Sumrall, if you've ever heard of him, a great man of God, someone I would encourage you, buy all his books, read all his books, study his, his sermon, his sermons. He was a phenomenal man of God. He had a vision when he was 18 years old, called to preach. He was still in America at this time, and the Lord showed him an open vision. And in that vision, he saw a highway, but it was like a conveyor belt, like those, you know, those, like, um, those, those pathways they have in airports that are motioned, and so you just hop on, and they're not escalators or anything like that, but they're like, they're, they're pathways. And you just hop on, and it drags you to where you're going, to where you need to go, in the direction you need to go in. Lester Sumrall sees this pathway and a conveyor belt, and all of the nations of the world, black, yellow, white, red, every color, every, every nation was represented. And they were all on that one conveyor belt and they were moving in one direction and as they did one by one and there wasn't just like 18 people he saw he said i saw hundreds and thousands of people one by one they began to fall head first plunge into this abyss and he said i went to look over to where they were falling into and it was a lake of fire and as they began to to fall over and and they were being swallowed by this lake of fire and they were drowning into it they were shrieking and crying out in desperation and uh he cried out to the lord and said lord like make it stop and nothing was stopping they kept moving over they kept falling over into this endless lake of fire and he said the noises that i heard were unlike i've ever heard before he said if the noises that I heard, it, he still remembered it years, decades later, retelling the story. It marked him. If you would hear one minute of the cries that hell has to offer, you would not live the same. And so, as he's hearing these, these cries come out, all of a sudden, his hands begin to gush out blood. And blood begins to, like, like almost like a... a a geyser just bursting forth from his hands and he cried out lord make it stop make it stop it freaked him out because what he saw he didn't think he was in a vision when you see an open trance a vision like that you don't think you're in a vision it looks like you know when paul saw the uh peter saw the angel come and deliver him the bible says then he finally knew that what was being done by the angel was real he didn't even know what was happening he he saw that and he cried, he pled with the Lord to make it stop. The Lord said, I cannot until you tell the people. And if you don't tell the people, their blood will be required at your hand. And he said, I will go, I will go, I will go. There is a cost associated with not winning the lost. If you think you can just 
live, I mean, you'll make heaven. If you believe on Jesus Christ and stuff, you'll, you'll make heaven. But if you think there won't be consequences, because Jesus, I said it before, I'll say it again. Too many, too many churches treat the Great Commission as the Great Omission. That it's something that, it's a side issue to the purpose and functionality of the church. And there's going to be a great whale in heaven. Why do you think the Bible says that on that day in Revelation 20, it says Jesus is going to wipe away every one of our tears. They're not going to be tears of sorrow for, um, uh, you know, everything that we had to go through and we finally made it across the pearly gates. It's not going to be tears of joy because why would he wipe away tears of joy? Those are glorious tears to, to shed. They're going to be the tears of people who are going to look back on their life and look at the timeline of their life and realize it's too late. Eternity has come and I wasted my life and I didn't obey the gospel. Because the gospel is not repent and be saved. The gospel is repent, be saved. Now live in light of my return and tell the people I'm coming back. That part of the gospel seems to be exempt in a lot of places, but it's not exempt from the Bible. It's not exempt from the Bible. Ezekiel's vision, God told him, if you do not go and warn the wicked, they will go to hell. People ask me all the time, if people aren't reached with the gospel, will God be merciful to them? No. They're born in sin. God cannot tolerate sin. If the blood of Jesus hasn't cleansed them from sin, they're going to go to hell. Don't let any Christian voice, don't let any voice dissuade you into thinking or persuade you into thinking that if they don't hear the gospel, then God will be merciful. I mean, if that were the case, why tell anybody? If that were the case, we should sit down in our houses and do no gospel preaching because every time we open up our little mouths, we're actually causing them to be accountable to God and in so doing, risking their eternity. If those that don't hear the gospel will make heaven, then... We should absolutely never tell the gospel again because in speaking the gospel, we're actually risking them not making heaven. But that's not the case. That's, that is literally the voice of a backslidden pe person. That is the voice of a lazy, spiritually, per uh, spiritually lazy person. That is the voice of someone who has abandoned the Great Commission, who has neglected this so great salvation that Hebrews 2 says we should never neglect. Number one, it is commanded. Number two, Jesus, our master. Why? Five reasons why you must be a soul winner. Number two, Jesus, our master, was a soul winner. First Timothy chapter two. Listen to this. First Timothy chapter two. First uh, Timothy chapter two and verse 15. And this is a faithful statement and worthy of full acceptance. That Christ came into this world to save sinners. Why did Christ come into this world? To save sinners. Of which I am the chief. If you go on in uh, chapter 2 and verse 3, Paul says again, This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Let me read this. Luke chapter 19. I've quoted this. 
many times throughout this broadcast. Listen to this. Luke chapter 19, verse 9. And Jesus said to Zacchaeus, Today salvation has come to your house, because he also is a son of Abraham. And for this, um, verse 10, For the Son of Man has come, for this reason the Son of Man has come, to seek and to save that which was lost. The second reason why we must be a soul winner is because Jesus, our master, was a soul winner and we are his disciples. What is a disciple? It's someone who subscribes to the disciplines of a rabbi, a teacher, a master. We've subscribed to Jesus's disciplines. What was Jesus's discipline? Everywhere he went, he sought opportunity to reach people. John 4, he goes to a, a well and there's a woman at the well. He sits by her and begins to preach to her begins to tell her things ministering under the gifts of the spirit word of knowledge you have had five husbands and the man you're out with is not your husband and she said man surely you are a prophet my people say on this mountain is the right way to, to serve god but you people you jews say on that mountain is the right place to serve god jesus said it's it doesn't matter what mountain the time is coming when those who worship god will worship him in spirit and in truth and then she went back to her village saying to the people come and see a man who told me everything i've ever done she was reached jesus just taking a break on his journey, saw an opportunity to reach that one person with the gospel. That one person, you have no idea what reaching one person for Christ will do. Mordecai Ham, the evangelist in the early 1900s, reached Billy Graham, one person in a crusade in North Carolina. And Billy Graham, what happened with him? We all know what happened with Billy Graham, how that story ended. Reaching over 200 million people with the gospel. It's estimated that over a billion people heard the gospel from his mouth through the various methods used, through radio, through television, through the written uh, book, that, the books that, he's, that he wrote, and through uh, gospel tracts. Over a billion people from Billy Graham. Look at Mordecai, Mordecai Ham's one crusade. I'm sure he went into North Carolina. Maybe he even felt disappointed with the results because only a few people got saved. But look at how that turned out. Within the few, one raised up called Billy Graham ended up being one of the most notable faces of the 20th century. They actually had him in Forbes magazine as top three most notable figures of the 20th century. A president's pastor reaching over 100 nations with the gospel, doing crusades. And still to this day, his material, I mean, I have books on him right behind me right here. His books are blessing me and stirring up in me a, 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 a zeal to win the loss and to go after souls. That woman at the well goes out, her whole village by the end of John chapter 4 is saved. Saved. And looking to Christ as the Messiah, the one who was to save the world. And you look at that Samaritan woman if you study John 4, it actually says, why are you talking to me? She told Jesus, why are you talking to me? I'm a Samaritan. You're a Jew. We have no dealings together. Some people, you know, I, was a, I used to work um, when I was younger, like 17. I was a salesman at, at AT&T. I would sell cell phones before I got saved and all. And my boss told me a story that I never forgot. He said, when I was working at a furniture store, it was a furniture and like uh, a television and... and um, audio visual store so like they sold television uh they they sold uh sounds surround sound and home home uh, studios and home theater home theater um products and so he was in that department selling the home theaters and and all that 
And this guy walked in who was like raggedy. He had, he looked like a bum on the outside. He looked like, he had a hoodie on, sunglasses. Uh, he looked like he literally just got done smoking some meth and walked into that place. And so there were three, three salesmen at the kiosk that day. And they were all like, man, I don't want to get this one. Like pretty much this guy's not going to buy anything. He has no potential to, to, to up my commission on today. So I don't want to even waste my time. They saw, he, he looked raggedy. Looked like he was homeless. And so they all were like fighting on who's going to go, who's going to go, not me, not me. And then finally he said, you know what, I'm going to go. He took it upon him, I'm going to go and, and hope for the best. Well, come to find out, the man, it was in Montreal, his name was Jacques Villeneuve, who's an F1, a famous F1 driver, who was a multi-millionaire. And he ended up buying like, I think his month's quota for sales in one day, in one sale. And he learned a lesson that day. Never, ever underestimate a person based on what they look like on the outside. And there's a spiritual lesson in that. Don't ever underestimate what God can do through one person, no matter what they look like right now. I want you to remember what God did through you when you were called. Not many of you were wise. Not many of you were strong. Not many of you noble. Not many of you were the brightest minds of your day. Not many of you were exquisite and eloquent. Not many of you were on your way to... I mean, I can tell you, I, I was a drug addict, dropped out from college, on my way to hell, nothing good. My own family didn't want to, you know, didn't really see much in me. I was the runt, the little guy in my family. Gideon said, I am the least in my father's house, and my father's house is the least of the clans of Israel. The lowest of the low. David was the runt of his family, the outcast. And when God reached them, when God reached me, there are multiplied thousands that I've reached now through the initial seed that God placed in me. So never look at someone on the street that looks like a prostitute as someone who, ah, uh, they'll never hear it. They'll hear it. You'd come to find out who were the ones that were flocking to Jesus' ministry more than anyone else. It wasn't the Pharisees. It wasn't the have, the have, uh, it, it wasn't the ones that had all. It wasn't the ones that were seen as, as dignified. It wasn't the ones that were, had prestigious, um, standings in society the the bible says he went into this into the house of tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes and they heard him and the common folk heard him gladly mary magdalene was a, a, a prostitute who had seven demons in her when jesus found her and she was the first one to see the resurrected christ and report to the others the first evangelist in history after the resurrection of Jesus Christ was a woman who years prior was full of the devil, but one touch from the master's hand. Just like when Jesus went into the temple and he threw over the tables of the money changers and he flipped over the tables of those who sold doves. And the, the Bible says he made a, a whip and drove out those who bought and sold in the temple. And he said, my house shall be called a house of prayer. In that hour, many that were afflicted, lame, and blind came to him, and he cured and healed them all. That's a type, a picture of what Jesus does in us. Remember, we are a temple. We are a temple. We're a housing unit. You are not a body. You are a spirit. You have a soul. You live in a body. When Jesus invaded your house, 
Mark chapter 3 says it this way. When the devil, the strong man, was fully armed, you were secured and set in his kingdom. There was nothing you can do. You were bound and captive to sin. But when one stronger than he, Jesus, came into the temple, he bound the strong man. He disarmed his principalities and his goods, and he cast them out. And now we can plunder this house, meaning we can, we, we can take back what the enemy has stolen from us. And we are now the temple of the Holy Ghost. God dwells in us. And we are to use our lives to glorify God in our body and our spirits. So don't discount what God can do through you. And then don't discount what God can do through others. Don't let the natural look of what they look like now persuade you into thinking they're not worth it. No. Everybody. I want you to get this and I want you to write this out in the comment section. Everybody is somebody to Jesus. Everybody is somebody to Jesus. Paul was a murderer of the church. Someone that the church, even when he got saved, didn't even believe him. It took Barnabas to come and take him by the hand and bring him before the church and say, no, no, his testimony is real. And the Bible says they did not know it was him. They only heard that he who once persecuted the church is now preaching the faith he once, he once tried to destroy. God can do that with Paul. Don't let anybody... Uh, anybody's physical appearance dissuade you from, from, from preaching the gospel to them. So number two, Jesus was a soul winner and we're, we are his disciples. The Bible says a disciple is not above his master or above his teacher, but it is enough for a disciple to become like his teacher. So you are, Jesus said, a disciple is, is not above his teacher. You're not above Christ. But the purpose of discipleship is that you become like Christ. Acts chapter 4, the Bible says, When Peter and John were brought before the Sanhedrin, they observed their boldness and they recognized them as having been with Jesus. Why? Because they were doing what Christ was doing and they did it like Christ did it. I want you to understand something. The very word Christian means little Christ. It means to be like Christ. It means, that's, what they, that's why at Antioch in Acts 11, they called them Christians because after Christ died and rose from the dead and went to heaven, they, you know, they believed that he never rose from the dead. They thought he had died and they had, the Jews had finally annihilated and destroyed their problem. They believed that they had finally you know, got rid of this religious zealot they called Jesus, this, this fanatic, this heretic. But the Bible says that the disciples carried on the work of Christ and were doing things like Christ did him. Acts 3, he gets to the gate called beautiful. Man who is lame, paralyzed from his mother's womb. Peter and John seeing them, such as we have, give, you unto, give unto thee in the name of Jesus. Rise up and walk. And a miracle was wrought. People began to flock together to see the man who was lame. And they were wondering, was it really him? Peter and John said, yes, it was him. But don't let our own godliness, don't think it was our own power. No, the name of Jesus, the name which we preach, has given this man perfect wholeness and soundness in the presence of you all and then acts 4 the bible says the sanhedrin summoned them and they they had to actually have a backyard meeting saying for indeed a notable miracle has been done amongst us is evident and we cannot deny it the fact that the work of christ did not seed did not seize after christ rose from the dead was evident because they began, Acts 5, Peter's shadows healing them. Acts 19, handkerchiefs and aprons are brought from Paul's body to the sick and they're being healed and restored. So you can see that his work continued through the disciples to the point where they started to say, these men are little Christ. We remember big Christ, but now these are little Christ. These are Christians. If you are a Christian, 
Then if you, if you call yourself a Christian, then you confess that the spirit of Christ is in you. If you confess that the spirit of Christ is in you, then the work, the fruit of that will be a heart to win people to the Lord. John 20, when Jesus, uh, John 21, when Jesus came to Peter after he had raised from the dead and he wanted to comfort him, after he had denied him three times, and, uh, you know, the Bible says Peter wept bitterly, and it was such a, 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 a heart-crushing heart, heart feeling he had. He even went back to fishing. He abandoned it. He backslid Peter. He went back to fishing. John 21, Jesus finds him fishing, and after he reveals himself as being risen, raised from the dead, Peter f- swims, doesn't even paddle back, swims to the shore. And Jesus has a little conversation with Peter, and he says this. He asks him three questions. But listen to this. He says, Peter, do you love me? That first love was not uh, agape love that he used. It was actually a different word. It was, um, it was filio, filial love, which is brotherly love. And he asked Peter, he said, Peter, do you filio me? Do you, do you love me with a brotherly love? Peter said, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said, then go after my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Filio again. You know that I love you. How many times are you going to ask me? Well, then go and tend to my flock. Peter, one more time, and he says, do you agape? Do you love me above all else? Do you love me without limit? Do you love me to the point of death? And Peter said, Master, you know that I love you. Jesus said, then go after my sheep. Well, what's, what's the sheep? J- Jesus said the parable, the 99. Which of you having 100 sheep, if one does not get away, if one does not leave the 99, leave the flock, which of you will go after it? A man had 100 sheep, one got away. He went after the one sheep that got away. He went after, Jesus said, if you love me, you're going after the sheep that got away. You're centering in your focus on the people that don't know me around you, wherever you might be. You know, Jesus, there's a lot of pastors who say, well, we'll leave the work of evangelism to the evangelist. Jesus said the good shepherd leaves the 99 and goes after the one. Shepherd is, is, is a pastor. The actual word for pastor, that's just the Greek word, but the word pastor is shepherd. A, Jesus was saying a good pastor is going after the one. A good pastor will make the work of evangelism a number one top priority. Then he goes on to say that a lady had 10 coins. She lost one. She swept her whole house. She didn't repolish. That's what happens in a lot of churches that don't focus in on evangelism. They're repolishing the same coins over and over and over again. Constantly trying to sort problems out in their church. You'll find out when you make soul winning the priority of your church, it's hard for division to rise. It's hard for strife to rise. It's hard for there to be any type of schism in that body. Evangelism is like a cure for the church. No wonder Jesus instituted it. It's a cure for the church because it's the purpose of the church. It eliminates 100% of the problems. 
I would say 99 because there are some problems that still rise up. But 99% of the problems that pastors are trying and Christian leaders are trying to sort out themselves and trying to, 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 to sort out themselves, 99% of those problems would be eliminated by making evangelism number one priority because it unifies the church. When we do our Hope Fests, Crusades, we bring churches together. In Saskatoon, there's such unity between the four or five churches that have come to ch together for this event this coming weekend. It's amazing. The pastor said, I've never seen unity like this. We've been having Zoom meetings with major, with, with Christian leaders from that area coming together. It's never been done. Then you have in Montreal, when we were doing our crusades, our church, Good News Chapel in Montreal, Quebec, the body came together. I've never seen such joy coming from people. I've never seen such sense of unity in my own, my own church. Then when we did that crusade in 2019 in St. Leonard, Quebec, it solves a lot of problems. Jesus was a soul winner. Now I want to get this in you, and I wrote this on Instagram yesterday, but I need you to hear this. Praying for the lost can never replace preaching to the lost. Jesus spent time in prayer. He spent all night in prayer to God, the Bible says, rising up a long while before daylight. He went to a solitary place, and there he prayed. He spent time praying, the Bible says, in the days of his flesh with long, loud cries and tears. He made prayer to God who was able to save him, because, and he was heard because of his godly fear, he, uh, Hebrews 5, 7. So Jesus spent time praying, but he didn't just hide away in prayer and try and sidestep the actual work that he was called to do. Prayer is not a replacement for evangelism. Could you imagine if I was a farmer and I just stood before a field that was untilled, unfertilized, unsown, unwatered, nothing. And I just lifted up hands. I said, Father, I thank you for the harvest. Draw the harvest in, Lord, that my house may be filled. In Jesus' name, we leave it to you. Amen. It doesn't work that way. That farmer would look stupid, A, and he'd die of starvation and his business would go uh, kaputs. He has to sell. In the same vein, if I, was, if I had a product, if I was a business, a company, and I had a product that I wanted to sell, what kind of foolish marketing campaign would I have if I just rented a warehouse, passed, passed out flyers, in that warehouse, I had my product. And I had one day a week where I had people come in, if they responded well to the flyers, I had people come into this warehouse Talk to them about my product, pitch my sale, and then close up shop and then come back next week. That company would not last very long. First of all, we're not even guaranteed that those people are going to come into the warehouse. What do people who have products do? They put them into Walmarts. They, put, they, put, they don't rent a warehouse, some isolated place somewhere out of the city. They make their shop set up in a mall, in a marketplace. They'll contract, they'll get a contract with Costco. They'll get a con they'll put it where the traffic is. As churches, that's how we've done marketing. That's how we've marketed the gospel. Come one hour a week, 10 a.m. to 12 p.m. We'll pitch our, our product, and then if you don't get saved, then we'll first of all, the unconverted world is not coming into churches by and large. I'm not saying it doesn't happen. I have an evangelist friend who just won 100 souls, new first-time decisions in uh, 10 days of meetings in, in, in uh, where is he, in New Mexico, Hobbs, New Mexico. 
So, it, yes, that happens. But if you want to reap a mass harvest, we have to train regular believers to sow in wherever you are in the marketplace, in your school, at the malls. And there's a blueprint God will drop into your heart that will enable you to, to, uh, to be efficient no matter the environment you're in. But we have to go where the flow is. Nobody fishes in their bathtub. You fish in the ravine. You fish in the streams. You fish in a lake. You fish where there's much traffic. Jesus said, I'm going to make you fishers of men. We can't be fishing in our bathtubs we call churches. We have to go beyond the four walls of the church. And we do it because Jesus didn't just stay preaching in synagogues. He met in the seashore. He met at, the Bible says, wherever he was, in the marketplace, in the village, in the cities. That's public places. He wasn't doing something privately in a corner not to be seen by men. He said, whatever you hear in your house, proclaim it on the rooftop. If the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8, Philip didn't reach him because he came to church that day. Philip reached him because he was carried away by the Spirit. He was on a highway going to Gaza. The Ethiopian eunuch was on a highway in a chariot going to Gaza. And the Spirit of God drew, drew him to that specific chariot and said, go, to that, go, go up to that chariot, jo join yourself to that chariot and preach. So Philip reached that Ethiopian eunuch who was a prominent man in Ethiopia. In Ethiopia, he was the, the treasurer for the queen of Ethiopia. He was a very prominent man. But he reached him in a highway. What's a highway? There's much traffic on a highway. It's not dead. It's not some back alley. The Bible says we are to go into the highways and the byways. And that's where we're to issue out the clarion call to be converted. Number two, Jesus was a soul winner, and we're his disciples. We must also be soul winners. The greatest method of showing God's love to our generation is preaching the gospel to the point of decision. It's not handing out hugs. Jesus didn't hand out hugs. He wasn't being, you know, people oftentimes compromise our mission to evangelize for the cause of being nice or kind. You're not called to be kind, first and foremost. Jesus' message was received in many places and was rejected in some places. Never compromise the simplicity of the gospel and the offense of, that the gospel carries for the sake of kindness or looking kind or seeming kind. There's many preachers on YouTube. There's many preachers on Facebook. There's many preachers around the world that will not talk, call sin, sin. They'll not talk about uh, current issues because they don't want to be labeled as unkind or unloving or like you're not being sportsmanlike. We're to speak the truth of God in love, absolutely. But the love of God does not allow you to sacrifice the truth of God it's actually unloving to compromise truth and Paul said have I now become your enemy because I have told you the truth you're going to make enemies in life if you associate with Christ he said if they hated me the master of the house how much more will they hate you the servants 
But the fact remains the same. Jesus told his disciples, any place that doesn't receive you, don't try and argue. Don't try and debate. Don't try and persuade them further. Wipe the dust off your feet and go to the next town. Don't try and repolish the coins that don't want to hear you. There's too many. Oswald J. Smith said it this way. He was a Canadian missionary. And he said it this way. Nobody has the right to hear the gospel twice when most of the world has never even heard it once. Nobody has the right to hear the gospel twice when most of the world has not heard it once. Move on. Every city, everyone that doesn't receive you, wipe the dust off your feet. It'll be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for them. And go. There's too many people that want to hear the truth, that are hungry for the truth, that are desiring an encounter with this truth to focus our efforts on people and arguing with people that simply, no matter what happens, will not obey the truth. Jesus didn't focus his efforts on trying to reason with the Pharisees. He said those people have rejected the will of God concerning themselves, not having been baptized by John. And he did what? My parable, he sent out invitations. One said, I have, I have a house I just bought. I need to go and see it. Another said, I just bought some yoke of oxen. I need to go and test them. One said, I just got married. Please have me excuse. They weren't interested. But what did Jesus say? Go and take, those who were called were not worthy. But now take my invitations. Go to the lame, go to the bruised. Go to the ones that realize their depravity without me. Go to the ones that are sinking into the pit of sin further and further day by day and compel them to come into my house. You don't need a special calling to do what Christ did. We are Christians and as a Christian, as a Christ follower, we are full-time soul winners. Part-time, everything else. Number three, hell is real. Hell is real. Jude, verse 20. Listen to this. Jude 20 to 23. If you're just joining me now, welcome. If you would uh, share this broadcast, you'd help me out. And you'd help many people out. Jude 20. You beloved, but you, beloved, build yourself up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost. Keep yourself in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And on some have compassion, making a distinction. Some have compassion. Some feel bad for. Some you should let the kindness of the Lord lead them to repentance. But others, save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. Other, so there's some that preaching the kindness and love of God is going to draw them in. Others, they won't be convinced until they hear about, about hell and about the consequence of sin. The Bible says those ones save with fear. You, got, you know, it's wrong to tell people that they should repent based on fear for hell. They should want to do it just because of love for God. Agreed, they should, but some don't. And the Bible says we're to save with fear. Hell is a real place. It is an actual, there's a physical location for hell. It is not some mystical, figurative place that doesn't really exist, that at the end of time, God's actually going to step back and say, ha, 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 I just used that as a tactic. It doesn't really exist. All those that rejected me, come, enter heaven. All shall be well. 
Because at the end of time, love wins. God's love requires His justice, and God's justice has to, uh, is, is dependent on His love. They're both coagulated together. They're connected. God is not loving and full of justice, and God is not full of justice without love. He is a loving, just God. His love empowers him for justice and his justice does not permit sin and it does not tolerate for sin and so because of that first of all I want you to understand the origins for hell hell was not created for mankind hell was not created for for human beings hell was not created after Adam sinned hell was created for the devil and his angels who had rejected and attempted to ejected God's rule in heaven and attempted to usurp his authority in heaven. Hell was created for demons and for Satan himself. A lake of fire where the Bible says that the, uh, the enemy will be bound, the devil will be bound and cast into the lake of fire forever. So people that say God sends people to hell, God never sends anybody to hell. People's own decision to reject the truth is what sends them to hell. They send themselves to hell after hearing the word of the gospel. The Bible says very clearly, and I read it before, God desires all men to be saved. God has already put in a ballot and has cast his ballot for you. God has voted for you. The devil voted against you it's up to you to cast the final vote. And what you do with Jesus and what you do with the truth of the gospel is what determines is what determines where you spend eternity. I want you to read I want to read something. Luke chapter 16 verses 19 through 31. This is the uh, one of the very f- few places where hell is detailed in such an account And uh, some people have called this a parable, but it is not a parable because Jesus never used real names in parables. This is an actual account, a picture of what hell is like and a documented story of what has happened or transpired in hell in history. Listen to this. This is Jesus speaking. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine, fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. There was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. Now remember, this is before Jesus Christ rose from the dead. So in the Old Testament, anyone that died, that believed and put their faith in the coming Messiah, they were stored away in Abraham's bosom. Though they were still dead, though they, they, their spirit beings were, um, you know, the spirit of man did not die. When Abraham died, he was still alive. His body died and he'll be raised one day, but his body died. But his spirit, the Bible ca- talks about a place called Abraham's bosom. It was like almost a, a, a safety place area within Sheol within hell not within hell within Sheol within the place of the dead not within hell because hell in the Bible there's actually no word for hell there's Gehenna there's different words that we um, have translated in our modern Bible to mean hell Sheol is the place of the dead 
Everyone who died in the Old Testament went to that place of the dead. Within that was Abraham's bosom, which was a safety haven for those that put their faith in the Messiah. The Bible says this beggar died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. Verse 23, and being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am in agony because of these flames. I wrote down here the three cries of hell. The number one cry of hell that this man uh, made evident to the reader today is Hell's number one cry, and it's still the number one cry of hell to this day, is give me relief. It is a cry for mercy, a cry for relief. The worst thing about hell is not going to be separation from God because people who live separate from God on this earth are going to live separate from God in eternity. And <laughs> if they live separate from God on this earth and they didn't think it was the worst thing to ever happen to them, then in eternity... The worst thing to ever happen to them will not be that separation from God. He didn't cry out, Lord, I feel far from you. He didn't say, God, I feel distant. He said, God, send relief. The number one cry in hell is for relief. There is a physical flame. The Bible talks about a worm that does not die. A maggot that eats away for an eternity at your flesh. The Bible says a flame that cannot be quenched. It can't be extinguished. It can't be put out. It is a physical fire that will burn away. But the problem is, is that your flesh will never actually be turned to ashes. You'll constantly have a body to be burnt. That's the worst part. You'll constantly have a body to be chewed away at by these maggots. And the Bible talks about a darkness that cannot be felt. That's why Jesus said, don't fear man who can kill your body. And after that, they can do nothing. Fear God who can destroy your body and then send your soul to hell. Where the worm does not die and the fire is never put out. Jesus said, if your eye causes you to sin... Pluck it out, cast it away. It's better for you to enter into life maimed with one eye than for you to enter into hell with two eyes where the, the fire is never quenched. But Abraham said, son, remember that in your lifetime you received good things and likewise at Lazarus evil things. But now he is being comforted, but you are in, are, are in torment. Besides all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed so that those who want to pass from there to here cannot and those who want to pass from here to you cannot do it. That's another thing. There will be. Hell has a million billion access points and entrances and doors and gateways, but there is no exit. Hell has a million billion entrances, but zero exits. Once you're in, there's no out. And, the, you know, it's not going to be a highway to hell and hell's rock and roll and, and, and fun partying and dancing. The Bible talks about it being a place of torment and a place where there is no escape. No matter how Hollywood likes to paint it. And they have movies now, uh, Lucifer on Netflix, pretty much shows you the devil's a good guy. He's going to treat you well. He's actually for your good. It's a lie from the pit of hell. 
And it's a lie if believed, it will lead you to the pit of hell. Verse 27, and he said, I beg you therefore that you would send him to my father's house. So number two cry in hell is that God would send a, a evangelists, send people to warn others, send people, send workers to tell others about this place. The number, one, the number two cry that this rich man had while he was in torment was God send people to warn them lest they also come to this place of torment. For I have five brothers that he may testify to them lest they also come to this place of torment and torture. The number three cry in hell is God at least save my loved ones. At least save those that I cared about. At least move to help and warn people that are in my family, my children, my brothers, my relatives, my loved ones, my workers, those that I spent the most amount of time with. You have to understand this. People will end up in heaven or in hell based on your obedience. That rich man had no ability to go tell people where he was. But this story should serve, serve as, a, as a warning. It should put in us a fiery passion that God's not blowing smoke when he's talking about this place of torment. And our obedience to the Great Commission will be the distinctive marker, the turning point for people as to where they spend eternity. And Jesus said, I'm going to heaven to prepare a place for you. A place where it has mansions with your name on it. A place where there's, there's no more sighing or sorrow or sickness or pain. A place where there will be no sun for Christ himself will be the sun and give us light. Heaven was prepared for people. But until they hear the gospel, they'll never go there. I want to move on to number four because four and five are important. Number four reason why you must be a soul winner. The harvest is plentiful and the laborers are few. Mar Matthew chapter nine. Matthew chapter nine and verse 36. Listen to this. And Jesus went about the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, healing every sickness and disease amongst the people. And when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion, for he saw them as sheep without shepherd, wearied and scattered. And he said to his disciples, the harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest field. So the problem is not on the harvest. The problem, people blame the harvest. They don't want to hear the gospel. Oh, it's hard. You know, that region is very hard to reach. Those people are very calloused and, and they're very hard in their heart. They don't want to hear this gospel. That's not what Jesus pointed to as the problem as to why people aren't being saved. He said the harvest is plentiful. The harvest is ripe. And if you know any farmers and you talk to them, when a harvest is ripe, you have to rush in to preserve it from decadence. When people are ripe for the plucking and for the reaping, we can't just push on and procrastinate. The greatest enemy for evangelism and the greatest enemy to soul winning is procrastination. I'll go tomorrow. I'll go next week. I'll do it next month. I promise next year. My next, I'm telling you, next New Year's re resolution, this is going to be top on the list. You'll never get to it. Jesus said it's not the harvest that's the problem. It's that there's too few laborers. 
And the reason why there's too few laborers is because the call of God to this field of lost souls is not preached enough. People aren't told. Most churches, you can go a full five-year sequence without hearing one message on the call of God to the lost fields of humanity. And there's people that say, well, I don't feel called to that. Not called, you say? Listen to this quote by William Booth. This is what William Booth said, who was the founder of the Salvation Army. And put, let this resonate in your heart forever. William Booth said about the call to the lost. Listen to this. This is about soul winning. Not called, you say? Not heard the call. I think you should say, put your ear down to the Bible and hear God bid you go and pull sinners out of the fire of sin. Put your ear down to the burdened, agonized heart of humanity and listen to its pitiful wail for help. Go and stand. Notice how when Jesus saw the multitudes, he didn't see them as people who had everything working together. He didn't see them as people who didn't, weren't interested. He saw them as sheep without shepherd. People who wanted to be led, wanted to be guided. People that were dispirited and distressed. People that had the weight of the world on their shoulders. People that were weighed down by the burden of sin. People that were held captive by the rope of sin. People that were looking for a way out, but there was nobody to tell them. Put your ear down to the burden, agonized heart of humanity and listen to its pitiful wail for help. Go and stand by the gates of hell. Hear the damned entreat you to go to their father's house and bid their brothers and sisters and servants and masters to not come there. Then look at Christ right in the face. So after you hear that, after you, 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 you get the heart, beat of God for lost and dying humanity after you see that this isn't some game that God's playing that there's a war being waged for the souls of men and we have to wage the good warfare tell the people that there's a way out after you've heard that that you are literally the cause of many going to hell or the cause of many going to heaven look at Christ in the face whose mercy you have professed to obey man this is this will send chills down your spine. Look at Christ in the face whose mercy you have professed to obey and tell him whether you will join heart and soul, body and circumstances in the march to publish his mercy to the world. After you've seen what I just read in Luke 16, that there's a place of torment that people who don't know Christ will go and spend eternity and that there's no way out. After you've heard the agonized cry of humanity and the cry of the damned entreating you to go like that man in, the, in Luke 16, the story I just read. Go send him to my father's house. Go and send them to my brother's house. Tell them, tell them that they should not come to this place of torment. After you've heard that, look at Christ in the face and say, I still won't go. Isabel Kuhn, who was a missionary to China and Thailand, said these words, I believe that in each generation, God has called enough men and women to evangelize the, the, all, all the unreached tribes of this earth. All the unreached people of this earth. In each generation, God has put, in, has put a call out to enough Christians who profess Christ to unreach, if they would obey the call, to reach the unreached places and the unreached people of this earth. It is not God who does not call. 
It is men who do not respond. It's not God who's not moving the calling. God is still calling. Isaiah 6, who will go from me? Who shall we send? Who's going to take up the baton of former generations to carry this glorious message of salvation to the unreached people and places and tribes of this world? It's not that there's no God God that's saying that is that there's no there's not enough Isaiahs that are ready and willing and quick to respond and say Lord here am I send me and some of you I'm not saying God's calling you to Thailand or India or some missionary field in Africa or South America some of you are calling some of you God has called to just reach your brother to pick up the phone and call that cousin to pick up that phone and call that sister to call that friend and from high school to go in the marketplace at a Walmart and he nudges you on the shoulder and says reach that one you're my arm I want to reach to them use your hands and your feet on my behalf to be an ambassador for what I want to do in their life don't ignore the call it's it's not that God is not called it's that people have not heard the call and have not or have not responded to the call the harvest is number four reason why we must be soul winners. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are weak. I sought for a man who would rebuild the gap, who would rebuild the walls and stand in the gap and build the walls of righteousness, Ezekiel 22:30, but I found none. God does not send angels to preach the gospel. Angels are ministering spirits sent forth to minister on behalf of those who will become heirs of salvation. Angels can help us preach the gospel. Angels can orchestrate meetings and divine appointments with others so that we can preach the gospel. Acts chapter 10, Cornelius has a vision of an angel telling him to go and send for men at, in Joppa at Simon the Tanner's house for a man called Peter, who when he came, Peter then had, the angel actually told Cornelius, he will tell you words by which you must be saved. Peter had to go physically present himself to Cornelius' house to tell him the words by which he was, he was to be saved. The angel was not commissioned, neither is an angel permitted to preach the gospel to men. It is not their task. It is not their assignment. It is not their mandate. They can help us. They can assist us. They can orchestrate meetings for us. They could even protect us as we go out on the fields to win the loss. My mentor in the faith, evangelist Tiff Shuttlesworth, was preaching in India once. As he was preaching, there was a, a temple for another god on the other side of the street. And he, the, I, they had like, a, you can pretty much hear whatever he was preaching because the mic was loud and the doors and the walls were thin. And so as he's preaching, they had a guy from that religion uh, show up with a machete in hand, barged through the crowd and was walking right, right to the front, to the pulpit area where T Evangelist Tiff was preaching. And he said, I prayed to the Lord. I said, Lord, how do you want me to handle this? Because he said, I'm from West Virginia. I'm ready to die for the gospel, but you're going to have to earn it. He was going to like, you know, drop kick him or whatever. And so he asked the Lord, Lord, what do you want me to do? Do you want me to stop this and deal with this guy? Or and the Lord said, keep on preaching. Just keep on preaching. I'll deal with them. As the guy got about 10 feet towards Evangelist Tiff, I, it was like an angel of the Lord had a Louisville slugger in his hand and just whacked the guy. And the man flew back and fell, knocked out. A couple of minutes later, another man comes in with a machete, coming to check in on, on his friend that came in. Comes to the altar, sees him on the floor, 
thought that maybe he had like knocked him out. The evangelist had knocked him out. So he comes charging the altar. Boom. Knocked to the ground. Falls to the ground. Now there's one body and another body on it. Third guy comes in. Bang. Same story. Falls to the ground. Fourth guy comes in. Bang. The fifth guy had enough sense to go. He saw four bodies piled on each other. And he just sat at the back and listened to the rest of the sermon. At the end of that sermon... Do you think anybody had to be compelled to come to that altar? Do you think there was any problem reaching people for the, for the, with the gospel of Christ that night? The whole crowd came forward and gave their lives to Christ. An angel of the Lord was there by Evangelist Tiff's uh, side to protect him as he went out and followed the call of God. So angels can do all those. But angels are not a substitute for men in the proclamation of gospel truths. The Bible says it very clearly that Paul, when he went to Malta, God didn't send an angel to Malta. God didn't come himself to Malta. God sent Paul to Malta and he preached and the whole island was changed. The Bible says when Paul went to Ephesus, so mightily grew the word of God from his mouth and it prevailed in the region. We have an assignment to preach the word of God. That's why I said before, it'd be ludicrous for us to just pray, Lord, send the harvest in. Lord, send the harvest in. Like a farmer praying, Lord, send the crops in. Just, I would ask even, not only just send the crops, would you even organize them into different meals? Slaughter the cows, slaughter the sheep, butcher them, cut them up into nice steak-sized pieces, and put them in my fridge, and we thank you for it in Jesus' name. You're ridiculous. It's not, it doesn't work that way. You have to do the work. It is the work of the gospel. The Bible says, Paul said, in mighty signs and wonders, I have fully preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so when I come to, I am confident that I will come in the fullness of the blessing of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul said in Romans 1, I am indebted to God to preach to both Jew and Greek, to barbarian and to freedmen. I have, he said, as much as is in me, I have a duty to preach. He said in, in the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Woe, literally, literally death to me. He carried a responsibility in his heart for his generation. Praying for the lost can never replace Preaching to the lost. Number five, and I finish with this. There are spiritual and tangible rewards when you preach the gospel. When you use your life as a vessel to usher in God's power, God's presence, and God's will and blessing into other people's lives. Number one, what are some spiritual and tangible benefits and rewards for being a vessel of honorable use for the purpose of God? Number one, joy. There's joy in the presence of the angel of God over one sinner that repents. And Proverbs 11 says, he that waters others shall himself be watered. When you soul win, you're watering heaven with joy. There's an atmosphere of joy that saturates heaven when one sinner repents. When you win someone to the, to the Lord, you're making heaven happy. You're pleasing God. The angels are having a party. And it's impossible to water heaven with an atmosphere of joy without heaven repaying the favor to you and watering you with joy. 
So, many Christians struggle with depression. That soul winning would cure in one minute. I guarantee you. Most people are suffering with depression because they haven't plugged in to God's general will for their lives. In his presence, there's fullness of joy. You can't go out. You know, where is God's presence? Yes, we agree God's presence is in, is in, is in us. But remember, he called himself the shepherd. And John 12 says that, um, let me read it. John chapter 12. This scripture just popped into my spirit. John chapter 12 Verse 26, if anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. So Jesus is saying, I'm the chief shepherd. I'm the good shepherd. If anyone desires to, to serve me, where I am, he'll be. Where's the chief shepherd? We read it. He's out in the wilderness looking for the one that got away. And so in his presence, his fullness of joy, where's his presence? Out where the lost are. Yes, his presence is in us. We agree with that. But the cheapest, quickest way to break free from all attack of depression is getting to where he, he is. And you'll experience that fullness of joy. He's out in the harvest fields. Connect with the harvest. And you'll find out. As you use your life, as, as you use your, your life as a vessel to flood other people with joy, you'll receive that same joy. You know, the Bible says when people believe, they obtain for themselves joy inexpressible and full of glory. So when you cause others to believe, to obtain that joy, you know, I always say it this way. A faucet, when you turn it on, if I put a cup under it, the cup is not the first to taste of the water that flows through the faucet. The pipe is. The pipe is the first one that gets the taste of the water that flows through it to get into the cup. The world is the cup. We're the pipeline. When you use your life and commit it as a living holy sacrifice to do the will of God in rescuing humanity from sin, you get to taste of whatever you're imparting to others. Galatians 6 says, whatsoever a man sows, he shall also reap. If you're sowing the gospel into other people's hearts, and as a result, they're reaping joy, you're going to reap the same joy. You sow gospel joy into others, you'll reap gospel joy into yourself. I, I have never, ever met a soul winner that was depressed. Never. Never. Billy Graham, joyful. Dagheard Mills, joyful. T.L. Osborne, couldn't find a happier guy than him. Smith Wigglesworth, as happy as happy can be. Myself, happy. Happy. And I tell you, try God. Try it. I, I was at just, just sitting, waiting for my tires to be changed at a garage once. And the secretary was there. She wasn't doing anything. I went, and I just started to tell my testimony to her. Open up my mouth, preach to her. She starts to tear up. I feel a word, a word, got anxiety and depression. I start praying for her. She accepts Christ that moment. Um, and, uh, and when I left that, that garage, man, I was like flying high. Soul winning will actually give you a, a high. I'm not kidding. They talk about the high you can get from meth. They talk about the high you can get from marijuana and the high you can get from uh, ecstasy and the high you can get from all these, these worldly, perverted, wicked things. Try 
taking a hit of soul winning and see the it's a high you won't be it's addictive i'm telling you it's addictive i was getting a haircut in boston just wanted to get my haircut i was preaching that weekend as i'm sitting in the in the 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 chair the guy uh, you know what do you do i tell him i'm a i'm a soul winner don't say i'm an accountant don't say i do brick lane don't say those things when someone asks you what you do I, i'm a soul winner i'm a preacher I'm an evangelist. I preach the gospel. What, what do you mean by that? This is how... It, and then it was an open door for me. Guy ends up uh, telling me he's been wanting to connect with God for years. He just never knew how. I told him Romans 10. If you believe in your heart, confess with your mouth. The Bible says you can enter into a relationship with God. God, he wants... He created you and he wants to bring you into his family. We're not all born children of God. To them that received Christ, to them gave he power to become uh, children of God. Guy gets, he starts shaking while he, uh, thank God he didn't mess my haircut up. He starts shaking while I'm ministering to him. I go into the back after, because I say, let me pray for you. And he didn't want to do it there. So I said, sure, if you have a private place. I grab his hand, start to pray for him. Power of God hits him. He accepts Christ into his heart. I went in there wanting to get a haircut, left there. Where I was the happiest guy that day. So happy, man. And that's right, uh, Melissa wrote, you crash from the high of drugs. You can never crash from the, the high of, of soul winning. It actually, you just build up on it more and more until it's impossible to contain. Number one, joy. Num you know, Psalm 126 says, those who sow in tears shall reap in joy. So when you sow, when you sow in tears for the loss, sow in tears for God, anoint me to reach my generation. Bible says, undoubtedly, you'll reap in joy. Number two, benefit and reward for soul winning is physical healing. Exodus 23, if you're a student of this broadcast, it's not the first time I quote this, this scripture. Exodus 23 and 25, listen to this. So you shall serve the Lord your God. How do we serve the Lord your God? Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and everything else you add shall be added unto you. Well, how do you seek the kingdom of God? By building the kingdom of God. How do you build the kingdom of God? By connecting people, people to the kingdom of God. When you serve the Lord your God, by using your life as a tool in his hand to hook people in, God will bless your bread and your water and I will take sickness away from the midst of you. That's a promise. Those who are on the go, God said, I have a covenant that I've established with those that are, on, that are, on, that are in service, in active service. You know, when you're a military man or a military woman, you have like benefits on airlines and benefits at Walmart and benefits all kinds of places because you're, you could be active military or if you're a veteran. In the kingdom of God, there's no such thing as veteran, but there's active military benefits. And part of it is God will take sickness out of the midst of you. Why? You can't be laying hands on the sick and seeing them recover. You know, the reason why we lay hands on the sick is because God has anointed us with power to heal the sick. We carry not enough healing power for ourselves, an overflow of that healing power. When you give your life to laying hands on others who are bound by sickness, you're going you're gonna to benefit from that healing virtue that's flowing through you first. God will do it in you and through you. 
You're not going to go around seeing everybody else recover and you still be bound by sickness. The quickest way to break free from sickness. Lay hands on the sick. Find people that are sick. Find people that are diseased. Find people that, are, that doctors have given up on, that don't know the Lord. And then use your life as a connection point to God. And what gets transmitted from heaven is first going to hit you to affect others. There's no record of Jesus ever being sick and he was on the go. There's no record of the disciples ever being sick as they were on the go. God anoints those who are on the go and he doesn't anoint them with just enough. Peter had such an overflow, just his shadow. Wasn't Peter battling flu season every single year? Peter had such an overflow because he was committed and consecrated and given over this work and this ministry of evangelization. Peter's shadow was healing people. He had an overflow. David said, Thou hast anointed my head with oil. My cup runneth over. When you are on the go winning souls, you'll have an overflow of healing power that'll break you free from every sickness, every disease, every ailment, every weakness, every infirmity, and every pain. Number three, financial peace comes to those that are on the go. Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. Listen to this. Verse 35. And he tells his disciples, When I sent you out without money bag, without, Jesus is saying, he's referring to Luke chapter 9 and Luke chapter 10 when he sent the 12 and then he sent the 70. He said, When I sent you out without money, because remember he said, Take no money bag, take no knapsack, don't take two tunics, only take one sandal, only take one staff, and greet nobody along the way. Meaning don't lobby around other people. Don't start, you know, begging men to support you in ministry. Or else, how many of you know, if, if you wouldn't give today, we won't be able to... Whether people give to this ministry or not, we're going to do everything God has called us to do because when I'm on divine assignment, I am entitled to divine provision. When I'm on divine assignment, I'm entitled to divine provision. He said, when I sent you out on divine assignment without knapsack, without money, without sandals, did you lack anything? And they all said nothing. And that included Thomas, the doubter. Thomas who said, unless I put my finger in his hand and my hand in his body, I'll never believe. So you know that if they were blowing smoke, Thomas would have stood up and said, actually, no, I did lack. But Thomas included said, we never lacked anything. Paul said uh, in, in Philippians 4.19, and my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory. God will supply the needs of those who are tied to his purposes. Elijah proclaims a drought on the land. God spoke to him, now I want you to go to the brook of Sherith. Even though the whole land was in a famine and a drought, Elijah was eating bread and meat in the morning and he was, being, he was drinking from the brook that didn't dry up until the time he had to go. As long as he followed divine instruction, he was entitled to overflow, to abundance. Job 36, 11 says, if you'll obey and serve me, I'll, you'll spend your days in prosperity and your years in pleasure. If you'll obey and serve me. In winning the loss, you'll spend your days in prosperity and your years in pleasure. You're not to be some Christian that's constantly needing, constantly needing a financial breakthrough, constantly, 
you know, the, the, the community project where everybody's lending a hand just so you can make it by. He's Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides. He takes good care of those who are called his servants. You know, nobody goes to war at his own expense. The United States Army doesn't send his, their military over and they have to supply their tanks. They have to work up fundraisers for their guns. They have to supply their own clothes. They're equipped. They are armed. They are clothed. They are shipped. And they are given all kinds of artillery funded by the American Army. When God sends you out, when you go out soul winning, he'll fund everything. He'll take care of you. He'll supply all your needs according to his riches and glory. Financial peace and prosperity belongs to those that are on the go for him. And number four, and I finish with this, answered prayer is a benefit to those who, who win the loss, who are soul winners. God has no obligation to hear your prayer as long as you haven't heard his cry. Zechariah chapter 7 and verse 13. Listen to this. Therefore it happened that just as he proclaimed, God proclaimed, and they would not hear, so they called out, and I, God, would not listen, says the Lord of hosts. As it, and it happened. As, as God proclaimed, and they would not hear, so they called out, and I would not listen, says the Lord of hosts. God has no obligation to answer the prayers of those who haven't even answered the call from heaven. God has no obligation to intervene in your affairs on earth when you haven't taken any care to his affairs in heaven. Psalm 50 says, What right have you to take my covenant in your mouth? Seeing that you've cast my instructions behind me, behind you and have not taken any care to my commandments, my instructions. You have no right to speak the covenant of God or to pray God's covenant or expect God to provide any answer to your prayers until you win the loss. Bible says in John 14, he that has my commandments and keeps them, he is the one I love. And he is the one who loves me. And I will answer him and disclose myself from him. John 14, 21. Whoever hears my commandments and keeps them, he is the one who loves me. And I will manifest myself to him. I'll answer his prayers. I'll, 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 when he asks, I'll be there. Psalm 91 says that because you have set your love on me, I will, I will be with you in trouble. You will call on me and I will answer you. God has issued out a call towards you. Use your life as my mouthpiece to your generation. If you reject that call, the phone line is disconnected. There's no bars on the Wi-Fi signal. And your prayers will never ascend heaven. I'm telling you, it is a law that cannot be broken. You want to know the secret for Jesus' answered prayers? It seems like he, he goes to the tomb of Lazarus. Father, I thank you that you always hear me. What could get Jesus to do that? Because he said, I've not come to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. And because you tend to his will, God will then move to do the things that you will.
to do the things that you desire. Delight yourself in the Lord and what he delights in, in reaching lost humanity. And Psalm 37, 4 says, and he will give you the desires of your heart. God has no obligation to answer the prayers of anyone who hasn't answered his call. Praise the Lord. I hope this helped you today. I'm going to pray for you right now, wherever you're at. Pray that an evangelistic zeal, the same zeal that's been put in my heart, the same zeal that was in Paul's heart, where he said, woe is me if I don't preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. He said, I've made it my aim. I've made it my objection. I've made my objective. I've made it my goal to preach Christ. Not where he is named, lest I should build on another man's foundation. I'm going to pray right now. That God would deposit that same sense of responsibility and duty in your heart. That same abandonment to self. You know, Paul said, I consider my life as no account dear to myself that I might finish my course with joy to solemnly preach the gospel. Father, I pray right now in Jesus' name, arrest the hearts of those watching. Make them prisoners to this gospel. Like Paul said, I, Paul, prisoner of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Where he said, bound by the word of God. Where Paul said, I, a slave of Christ. Even as you have broken off our lives, the slavery to sin. Make us slaves to your commission. Slaves to your purpose. Slaves to your will. Help us, like William Booth said, to hear your call. To hear the... The, the pitiful wail of humanity asking for redemption. Activate us into your harvest fields. Empower us to do thy bidding. In Jesus' name, we will be the salt of the earth. We will be the light of this world. We will not hide our light under a bed, but put it on a lampstand that it might give light to all that are in this house. We will light our light, let our light shine in such a way that others might see our good works and see and glorify our God who is in heaven. In Jesus' name, I pray for anyone who's grown weary. Anyone that used to have this fire to win the loss in them, but it, it waned out, it, it withered out, it's smoldering. You said you will not snuff out a smoldering wick. I ask you, oh God, set them ablaze again. You said I have come to set fire to the earth. You said in your word that you would baptize us in the Holy Ghost and fire. Let that mighty baptism of fire be restored to your people today. That like Jesus, we would... Work the works of him who sent us while it is yet day. Like Jesus, where he said, my meat is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his purposes. Like Paul, to not set aside this great commission, but to make it our life's work in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Stamp eternity on our eyes, O oh God. Embed within our hearts the reality of eternity. That no blood would be required at our hands when all is said and done. But Father, that we would stand before you one day and hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. 
Enter now into the joy of the Lord. In Jesus' name. In the name of Jesus. Stay connected with us by visiting us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook by searching at TJ Malkanji. Or visit us online, www.salvationnow.ca. God bless you, and until next time.